Father, it is indeed our privilege to come and sit under your word, Lord. It is, um, it is a time of gravity, of weight, and uh, Lord, for your people, it is a time of joy. Lord, to come and hear the preaching of your word, Lord, and I do not miss the gravity of the situation, Lord, and I um, am not arrogant enough to believe that it is something that men can do apart from the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, as one who has been called to preach, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, For apart from it, we would be lost. Thank you for granting us your spirit that we may actually see Christ, Lord. For apart from you revealing those truths to us, Lord, we would be blind. But yet, Lord, here we are to sit and to look at your word, infallible with no mixture of error, Lord. It is everything we need to live a life of godliness. And so, Lord, as we come, I pray first and foremost that you would uh, use a feeble man to proclaim the infallible word. And Lord, as we leave this place, may it be that the saint is encouraged. And Lord, if there be any here who do not know Christ, Lord, may it be that you would indeed reveal yourself to them, draw them into relationship with you. So Father, may we leave this place celebrating the gospel. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This week, we're essentially hitting a part two. Um, so if you're visiting with us here this morning, we are uh, devoted to walking through the scriptures verse by verse. Um, that's how we do the preaching of the word here because we believe that to study God's word, we should study it in its proper context. We believe that as we study God's word, we should walk through a book in, in its entirety so that we can have a proper understanding and, and rightly divide the word of truth. So if you have your Bibles this morning, John chapter one is where we will be starting in verse 35. You can go ahead and turn there. And just kind of as a point of uh, perhaps introduction, um, there are many, many things that we do when it comes to evangelism. Um, I, I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church. I kind of grew up a little bit of everything. I was, grew up Baptist, Methodist, and Episcopalian. I was a little uh, schizophrenic. Um, but nonetheless, it was an interesting perspective because I got different perspectives on what evangelism actually looked like. As a young child, I came into the church and there were things like the ABCs of salvation and there were um, confirmations that I did where essentially I walked through a class and someone dubbed me at that point saved. Um, but when it comes to evangelizing, when it comes to reaching out to people with the good news of Christ, how should we do it? How should we do it? Last week we talked about testimonies and how it's an incredible thing to share a testimony, meaning that we make known the gospel to people through what God has done in our life, both in our works, but ultimately our actions and the things that we say should point, us, should point others to Jesus. If there's anything that's said about ourselves, it should ultimately be the things that the scripture says about us. And I would remind you that the scripture makes it abundantly clear that we, apart from the grace of God, are lost sinners in desperate need of someone to rescue us, and we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. So how then do we reach out to those who are completely incapable of rescuing themselves, who are blind and dead in their sin, how do we reach them with the gospel? Is it through unique methods? Is it through perhaps knocking on doors and and, and mentioning to people, hey, we'd like to just simply invite you to church? Now, as a pastor, I delight when you invite people to come to the preaching of God's word, but that is not the primary means of evangelism. It's secondary, sure. 
And perhaps you have a conversation with someone and they want to kind of check this thing out and, and really see what our church is about or what the gospel is about or even what a covenant people look like. But the question is, how do we actually present a message that leads people to faith in Christ? And I would encourage you this morning, as we walk through this passage, what I want you to see is that if we are to do biblical evangelism, we offer people nothing but Jesus. It is not a matter of us knocking on doors and inviting them to churches. It's not a matter of us making people seem like more moral or even seeing some behavior modification take place in their life. The gospel is about offering people Jesus. It's not even ultimately about offering them benefits of being in Christ. It's about offering them Christ himself. So this morning as we walk through this passage and we look at how John does evangelism and the results of his evangelism, my prayer is that we would leave this place resolved to to proclaim one message and one message alone, Christ and him crucified. And so if you would, join me in John chapter 1 starting in verse 35. And if you would, we love God's word here, we honor God's word, and so would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? I would remind you the beauty of God's word, it is the absolute only true authority for the Christian life. And so John chapter 1 verse 35 says this, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Let's pray together. Father, we delight in your word. Lord, we thank you that it is indeed the only infallible authority for the Christian life that we might walk faithfully before you. And so, Father, as we come this morning, we come trusting the authority and the power of your word. We trust that it is able to make wise the simple. We trust that it is able to reveal Christ to others. And so, Father, as we are here as your saints, we delight in the reading and the preaching of your word. And so, Father, we ask you to accompany it with the power of your Holy Spirit that we might just be awestruck by the beauty of Christ this morning. It is in the precious name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. So that all being said, as we consider what it is to actually do evangelism, what I'd like to do this morning is to walk through uh, this passage in two ways. We're gonna look first and foremost at the message of John. What is John actually teaching? And then we wanna look at the disciples' response. And so to give you the sermon in a sentence real quickly, just so that we know where we're going here, the sermon in a sentence is this. The saints are to proclaim the simple gospel message so that those who hear might follow Jesus. Did you hear this again? The saints are to proclaim the simple gospel message so that those who hear might follow Jesus. And everything that we do here, we are a church plant for a reason. We believe that there are more churches needed in Olive Branch for the purpose of reaching the lost, to seeing people come to faith in Christ. We love to see the saints sanctified and we love to see the sinner saved. And the reason that we're here is ultimately to reach out into this community with the beauty of the gospel, expecting people to actually come to faith in Christ. 
One of the most uh, traumatic things that I experienced as a young man as I was walking with my youth pastor doing evangelism, and uh, there was this moment where I looked at him and he was mortified. I mean, just really, really downcast. And I asked him, I couldn't help it, I asked him why. Why, why, are, you so, why are you so downcast while we're reaching out and sharing the gospel with people? And, and he made this point, he said, I just, I have never seen fruit. I had never seen fruit. Little did he know that I was right there and I was actually fruit from his ministry. But, but nonetheless, when he knocked on these doors, he became so discouraged. And so this morning, before we even get into this message, I would like to point out to you what a victory in evangelism is. Because this is crucial. This is what will ultimately bind your feet in evangelism and make it where you ultimately don't want to do it or it will give you great motivation. First and foremost, you need to understand that as we proclaim the gospel message, salvation is not the victory. I want you to understand that it is a great victory. When we see people come to faith in Christ, that is a joy to see. But the victory is being obedient to the command of your king. We are commissioned to go forth and make known the gospel to people. I would ask you this question as we consider that statement. Are you able to save? Are you able to articulate the gospel in a way that you see people every single time come to faith in Christ? Friends, if you have the perspective and the belief that you are able to argue someone into salvation, you will find that your evangelism will grow very weak and wearisome because ultimately you are convinced that you're able to save and you're watching people not come to faith and you're going to realize that you're a failure. If your aim in evangelism is only, if your victory in evangelism, if your celebration in evangelism is seeing people come to faith as it should be, but that's your only motivation for it, you will quickly realize that it is something that will wear you slam out because you're trying to be God and you're not. Salvation is purchased, brought, and, 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 and made perfect in Christ and in Christ alone. We are incapable of doing that. Now, the reason I bring that to your attention is, first and foremost, I want you to understand that when you share Christ with someone, praise be to God, you've been obedient and you've glorified the Father, regardless of their response. Secondly, I want us to understand as we move into this next part where we examine the message of John, I want you to understand that there were people that were sitting around the day before and in this very day that heard the gospel message, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that did not immediately follow. The beauty of evangelism is we have the opportunity to bring it to each and every soul until they draw their last breath. And we should be just as zealous to see the person that we have shared the gospel with once and the person that we've shared the gospel with many times longing to see them come to faith in Christ. We are to be consistent. And so let's look first and foremost at the message of John. The message of John, he repeats, is in John chapter 1, verse 36, and it says this, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I can't, I can't bypass this because immediately following, literally this is the day after, John looks at the people as he watches Jesus approach for the first time and he proclaims, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's very interesting that John's message does not change, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world where if something fails once, ultimately we should maybe go back to the drawing board and maybe change our strategy. The beauty of John's message is its consistency. When John preaches the gospel, he does so consistently because he only has one message to give. We would be wise to understand this. When you consider John's message, his message is a simple one simply because he has no other message to be given. As John preaches the gospel, he is ultimately proclaiming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because he knows that is the only message that is actually able to save. And so as John consistently proclaims this message, I think it's necessary for us to examine it real quickly. Now, I know last week we talked about this for just a moment, but to fully walk through this passage, we have to understand the message that's being proclaimed. 
The message that's being proclaimed is look to Jesus. Now, the reason I bring this up is because our messages today seem so different. More often than not, we present the benefits of being in Christ other than Christ himself. Let me make this abundantly clear. Christ offers no benefits apart from himself. There is no way to enjoy the privileges of being in Christ without loving Christ deeply and supremely. Do not be fooled. And friends, I would say to you that there are many, many who long for the benefits of being in Christ but do not love Christ himself. And this is not a new problem. This is old, ancient. Augustine made reference to this. As we consider those that we look at, that seem to earnestly be seeking after God. They, they long to, to have the things that we have. Augustine made the point that it's not because they're actually seeking after God, it's because they're seeking after the benefits of being in Christ. Friends, there are many that long for peace. There are many that long for redemption. There's many that long for their guilt to be forgiven, but ultimately they cannot accept Christ for who he is. And none of those things will be had apart from him. If anything, it is a pseudo-gospel that is not actually not able to save. If we present a gospel that's different than John's, that doesn't proclaim, look to Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're proclaiming a weak gospel, ultimately divorcing the benefits of Christ from Christ himself. They cannot be divorced. They cannot be separated. And so John's message is consistent because John's, the object of salvation is the same each and every time. As we present the gospel with people, I understand that there are various ways that we can approach it. But please, I urge you, never ever make an attempt to share the gospel with someone where you leave out the fact that to be in Christ is the actual gospel. It's not even the forgiveness of sin. It's not baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's not having a community of covenant people. The benefits of being in Christ is knowing Christ. And my, the greatest tragedy that we, that we have in our very saturated Christian society is we have a Christless Christianity that ultimately says you can have forgiveness of your sins without a deep love for Jesus. They're not separated. They're not. And the reason I drive that home is because I'm convinced that there are people in our community, around the world, who are convinced that they have forgiveness, but they have no affection, no love. They do not submit to the authority of Christ. And they will go to their grave convinced of their salvation, and they will look to Jesus that day, and he will say, away with me, you evildoer, I never knew you. And I want to point out this language here in this word. I never knew you. Notice the paramount of salvation is knowing Christ. That's the, that's the mark of the believer. You can do all sorts of things in his name. You can think that you have redemption of sin. You can think that you have forgiveness of your guilt. But if you do not have an intimate relationship with Christ, salvation is not had by you. He is the gospel. And so when John preaches the good news, he says, behold the Lamb of God. And he's looking back even the day before who takes away the sin of the world. But the very first proclamation is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the good news. The only thing Christ offers is Christ himself and all the benefits of being in him, sure, but he is indeed the gospel. And so as we begin to proclaim the gospel message to people, we should do as John did. Please look to Jesus. He is the great object of our faith. He is the author and perfecter. And should we fix our eyes on him, then yes, we will receive the benefits of being in him. But he is the goal. He is our heart's affection. He is what we long for. And all the benefits of being in him come secondary. We rejoice in them. Man, we rejoice in them. I will not downplay the forgiveness of sin. Even this week, you know, you, you always, maybe I'm the only one, but I find my, I catch myself in sin um, every so often. I looked at Beth this week, um, and Beth was reaching to take a, a bite of my food. Um, and normally that provokes a response in me of great frustration. Um, 
And I just looked at her and I said, man, I've been so selfish. I know that seems minor, but, but I want you to understand that when, when, when Christ has hold of your life, those minor sins, all of a sudden, you, you will feel the guilt behind them, and then you will also feel it melt away rather quickly under the grace of Christ. And so when you consider those little bitty sins that you might think are petty, understand that those are the things that drove Christ to the cross to redeem you from your sin. And so I want you to understand as much as I would say, yes, Christ is the gospel, the benefits of being in him are the greatest joy. That as we have Jesus, as we experience intimate relationship with him, that's the message that we give to people because if they come for any other reason, they will soon be gone. If you come to If you come to church, if you come to reading the scriptures, if you come for any other purpose than Christ, you will find that whatever object you're seeking will not hold your affection. Only Jesus can do that. And so his message is consistent. Secondly, his message is simple. The incredible thing about this is that as as John proclaims this message, it's not super complex, is it? There's not a whole bunch of depth to it. He's simply making the simple statement, I want you to look to Christ. If you look to Christ, then all your hope can be found in there. And I would encourage you because I have found that one of the number one things that hinders people from sharing the gospel is the fact that you might have to answer a question. I mean, how mortifying is that you begin to share Christ with someone and they begin to talk to you about evolution? What? Or perhaps they begin to talk to you about different social agendas that take place today. I'm going to be honest with you. You can argue till you're blue in the face, but you arguing and convincing someone that evolution is not true or the social issues that you find in today's society are ultimately sins, you're not going to argue someone into heaven. Your goal, your task is a simple one. Preach the simple gospel message. You arguing with someone will not win souls. The gospel wins souls. One of my great frustrations with apologetics today is there's two main streams of apologetics. One is called evidential. There's nothing wrong with it. Ultimately, it's presenting some type of evidence contrary to what the world believes. And there's another one called presuppositional apologetics. And I love this. It's personally my favorite because the presupposition is that the people you're arguing with are dead in their sin. And apart from the authority of God's word and the gospel reaching their ears, they will not come to faith. I can think of a time when I was in student ministry, the major conversation that came up was evolutionary theory because ultimately that was what was being taught in our schools. And there was one kid who I sat down with multiple times and I, at this point in my life, began to really love the idea of evidential apologetics. I really studied very deeply the book of Genesis, studied evolutionary theory and ultimately found some holes in it that I was able to present to him. And at the end of the conversation, he made the point that, you know, I think you're right. There's, I think there's some things here that don't line up. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, if I can disprove this one thing, this person will come to faith in Christ. If I can break down his worldview, then ultimately by the end of this, I will watch this kid repent and trust in Jesus. Guess what? He didn't. And I realized at the end of the conversation, I had really failed to understand the power of the gospel. Because only the gospel is able to make dead men live. I can argue intellectually with someone. I can destroy their worldview. More often than not, all I've done is make an enemy. But the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel trusts in the power of God for salvation, that though it may be foolish to those who are perishing, it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Yes, it is a stumbling block for many. But for those who will look to Jesus, see the, by the Holy Spirit's regeneration, illumination, see the beauty of Christ, then you will watch dead men live. The beauty of the gospel is it is a simple message for the saint to give. It is a simple message for the saint to give. Look to Jesus. He is able to save. And we trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work that 
he has intended. Next, John's message had an intended end. In chapter 1, verse 37, it says this, the two disciples who heard him say this, uh, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They, they just immediately leave. And this was the intention all along that John had. It's incredible if you consider John and who he is. John, yes, he's had a growing influential ministry and the immediate thing that he's doing, and he does this for multiple days. If you notice the language in verse 35, he says the next day. So immediately what happens after the day where he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he proclaims the one who has come that is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit, the next day he makes the exact same proclamation. His intended end is the same as the day before that people would follow after Jesus. The beauty of going and sharing the gospel with people is we can actually have an intended end. Yes, the intended end should first and foremost be obedience to the Father as he has given the commission to go and to make disciples. Secondly, the commission is to glorify God in everything that we do. We proclaim the gospel message because it is worthy that in every single area of the world, people sing loudly the praises of Christ. But thirdly, our intended end is to see people come to faith to see people come to faith in Christ, to see people actually follow Jesus. No, we cannot in any way, shape, form, or fashion make them do that. But friends, how can they believe unless they hear? And I would encourage you, do not take for granted that every single individual you come in contact with in the South has heard the gospel. And I will say very clearly that there are many that would preach a gospel that is completely and totally contrary to the gospel we find in Scripture. They preach a gospel that is men ultimately saving themselves, or they preach a gospel that's ends is actually better than its means. That's tragic. That's like saying you love the benefits of marriage more than you love your bride. The gospel has an intended end. The first and foremost intended end is to glorify God. Secondly, the intended end is to see lost people come to faith. And as you go forth and share the gospel, I would encourage you, preach it simply. Look to Jesus. There are various passages that you can memorize that would give you a very simple gospel presentation. I would encourage you, perhaps Ephesians 2.1 or uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 or even uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These passages very clearly lay out the gospel. They're not, they're not difficult. They're not hard to, to proclaim. They're not hard to teach. And if we have an understanding that God is the one who saves, then we can proclaim this message with its intended end. And even if we walk away and people don't come to faith in Christ, we gladly rejoice in the fact that he has given us the privilege of witnessing to those people the glory of Christ and salvation. And so the gospel message is consistent. The gospel message is simple. And the gospel message had an intended end. Friends, I would encourage you, do not be heartbroken as you share Christ. Do not be discouraged. God has an intended purpose in salvation, and he will do with it what he pleases. I would encourage you, you the call for you is simply be faithful. Be faithful. And perhaps in this moment, just as a brief pause, there is someone that you have that you know very clearly does not know Jesus. Perhaps you have failed time and time again to have a little bit of boldness and proclaim the gospel message to them. I would encourage you, we, we say at Mercy Hill Church that there are three intended outcomes for every sermon, that people grow in the knowledge of God, that people grow in steadfast love, or that people grow in faithfulness. My prayer for you here is that you would grow in faithfulness in light of the fact that the gospel message is not incredibly difficult and yes, it has an intended end. You are called to simply be faithful to proclaim it to those who the Lord has given you the opportunity. Do not shrink back. And I will confess to you my weakness in this area. I tell you often that in every sermon I prepare, normally there's a moment where I have to repent and this was it. 
Because rarely do we, as frequently as we should, and as the opportunities present itself, faithfully proclaim Christ to people. We shrink back from fear. We shrink back for various reasons. But ultimately, friends, every time we shrink back, that's a soul that may never hear the gospel. And so by, uh, by the Lord's inspiration, by the Holy Spirit's conviction, I would encourage you, be faithful in your proclamation of the gospel. Do not be overcome or weighed down by the fact that you might have to answer some questions. The goal is to simply proclaim Christ and him crucified. And remember, friends, we do not go proclaiming a message other than the message of Scripture. One of the greatest failures in evangelism is that we use things other than the Scriptures to bring the gospel to people. What is able to make wise for salvation? The scriptures. What is it that is sharper than a two-edged sword that splits bone and marrow and soul and spirit? That's the scriptures of God. And if you bring people something other than that, do not expect people to repent and believe in Christ because only through the word of Christ will people repent and believe. Know the tool that God has given you. It is a powerful weapon. Next, I'd like to point out to you the response of these apostles, of these disciples. These disciples are following after John. They love John. And then we see something happen really quickly as he proclaims these things in verse 37 through 40. Let me read those to you real quickly just as a refresher. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looking at him and said, looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now I want to point out to you three things here. First and foremost, I want you to see their desire. Now this is what the appropriate gospel presentation does, is it points people to the object of their salvation, and should we be faithful presenters of the gospel, what what, what will happen is they will actually seek that which actually saves. And so notice what happens here. In verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. The object of their faith is the one that they were stepping behind. They weren't looking for riches. They weren't looking for influence. They weren't looking for authority. Ultimately, they were going to bow themselves under the authority of the one who's actually able to give salvation. Notice what they say in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? I love that. Just as a brief aside here. It's, it's so interesting that what you have here is the disciples essentially fall in line behind Christ, yet it is still Christ who initiates the relationship. Yes, they followed under the proclamation of John. John proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And can you imagine, these are the first words that these men would hear from their Savior. The one they would follow for three years, the one they would ultimately watch be crucified, dead, buried, but then raised gloriously on the third day. These words, what are you seeking, are convicting words from the Messiah. I have to wonder, um, many times in the New Testament, you see Jesus answer or ask questions based upon the thinking of the individual who he's conversing with. We see this in John chapter 3, we see it in John chapter 6, we see it all throughout the scriptures, the gospel accounts. And here I can't help but wonder if Jesus, knowing that he's following them, begins to turn and to interact with them in a way to maybe prod their thinking for just a moment. What are you seeking? Now, you've already heard me say, and I've hopefully made this point, I I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but can I ask you the question, what are you seeking? And the reason I ask that question is because, friends, in this in time there are many who say they follow after Jesus and they're not seeking after Jesus at all frankly they're not even seeking after things that Jesus promised he'd offer there are many churches they grow rapidly I mean they they explode 
churches that have arenas. Many have arenas because there is a man that stands in that pulpit who faithfully preaches God's word and men have grown to love it. And there are others that stand in pulpits to proclaim messages that are not of the scriptures at all. So my question for you this morning is, why do we seek Christ? When Jesus looks at them and says, what are you seeking? I want you to notice that very clearly here, we can see from their response that they actually wanted Jesus and actually wanted him to be the authority in their life. Notice the language in verse 38. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi. Now this, this in and of itself gives great insight into what the apostles, what, what the future apostles actually wanted. They wanted someone to sit under, to learn from, to follow, and ultimately to be like. The intention of following after a rabbi is that you might pick up his ways and follow faithfully after him. Friends, if we come to Jesus because he can bring us health, wealth, and prosperity, first and foremost, that's a lie. Following after Jesus does not ultimately mean that you will have some ways, that you will have some extra wealth, extra health, or be, uh, well, you are actually extra wise if you follow Jesus. But nonetheless, friends, there are pulpits in this very town who proclaim a message that you should follow Jesus because he'll give you everything you ever wanted. Friends, he is everything you ever wanted. And so for us to say that we come to Jesus for any other reason, ultimately than because we want to be like him, because he is the object of our affection and our faith, we have made fools of ourselves. And I would encourage you, there are many that you will talk to who follow after Jesus because they believe they can give, him, give, give themselves something of this world. Christ doesn't offer you the world. He doesn't at all. He tells you to forsake the world. Do not love the world. He tells you the greatest object of your faith, the only hope that you should is in me, is only in me. I love what Peter has to say in regard to this. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that. The language is exclusive. And more often than not, Scripture's language is exclusive. Set your hope fully. That means it's not meant to be anywhere else. It's not meant to be skewed. It's not meant to be placed in different objects. It's meant to be placed fully on Christ and on Christ alone. And so when we say that we want to follow after Jesus, we should actually have a desire for Jesus himself. And what you see is in John's proclamation and the response of these disciples, they actually desired Christ. Not only that, but they were gladly submitting to his authority. Now, we live in a world where submit is a word that has been hijacked and has been taken various other ways, but submission is a glorious thing. And I say this for multiple reasons. Number one, we're eventually going to deal with complementarianism, the way that we gladly submit as our our husbands gladly love their wives and, uh, and wives gladly submit to their husbands. We do this because we as grooms and you as brides gladly submit under the authority of Christ. It is not lowering your value. It's simply saying that my expectation is that Christ has a better way, that he is our ultimate authority, that he is our ultimate head. And we gladly submit to that because he is indeed glorious. He is the object of our faith and we bow to that authority because he is actually worthy of it. Do you know this? Christ is actually worthy for you to bow under, to sit under day in and day out. Never will he lead you astray. He gives you his word that you might follow after him faithfully, that you might be trained in all godliness. And friends, as the apostles sought after Jesus, their desire was actually to look at him. Friends, if you are in Christ and you do not, or if you proclaim that you are in Christ and you do not delight in bowing under the authority of Jesus, my first question would be, do you even know the Messiah that you say you follow? Friends, to know Christ is to gladly submit to his authority. To know Christ is to look at him and say, your way is always better. 
Even when we have some friction here in the world, even when the gospel message is hated and spurned, even when uh, biblical views of marriage are being assaulted, his way is still better and the saints should gladly bow to it. It's a clear evidence of your salvation. We gladly bow to his authority. These apostles, future apostles did the same. Thirdly, I love this. This is a, an appropriate response, and you see this time and time again. Um, you, you find in verse, 40, verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. I love this. The incredible beauty of evangelism is that oftentimes evangelism, actually every time evangelism leads to salvation, ultimately what you produce is another evangelist. I love this because the story starts off with one. I mean, if you consider this, there are only a couple of people at this point in time who are able to preach a gospel message to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now there's four. This is a beautiful thing, friends. If we long to see what happens in Genesis chapter one, to go forth into the world, to multiply and subdue it, friends, that commission is still in place today, in particularly for the saints, that we would go forth into the world to proclaim, to make known the glory of God. That is the proclamation, that is the commission that's still being given. It's almost reinstated at the Great Commission. Go forth. Tell everyone the news of the gospel. See people come to faith. Train them that they might be obedient to all that I have commanded. The beauty of evangelism, beauty of John's proclamation is it, it, it produces others who will proclaim the same message. Friends, biblical evangelism is not something that stops with the first soul saved. It is something that starts new evangelism. It's like the completion of discipleship. I have said many times and will continue to say that the DNA of this church, discipleship is not a part of the DNA of this church. Discipleship is the DNA of this church. We love to see people come to faith. We love to see them trained. Discipleship never stops. It simply reproduces. What you see here is just that. John the Baptist proclaims, behold the Lamb of God. Immediately, these two men, after hearing that, even though they had heard it the previous day, it does something in their heart because of the power and the working of the Holy Spirit of God in them. They immediately go, they follow after Jesus, they long to be like him, and their first response is others must know about him. And to be real honest, it's only in Christianity, it's only in, um, in religion, perhaps, that we would consider where people don't actually do this. Have you noticed that when you experience something good, your first reaction is, hey, I have to invite somebody to come do this with me. You notice that when you eat at your favorite restaurants. You notice that when you watch a new movie that you just love. Hey man, we need to watch this with me. It's only in the gospel that for some reason Christians began to take a brief pause in, 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 in asking people to enjoy what they themselves are enjoying. I love what John has to say about this in 1 John. He makes the point that he is writing these things that his joy may be complete. Friends, if you are a Christian that never evangelizes, you are experiencing half the joy of the Christian life. Because to enjoy Christ with another is the greatest privilege that we have offered here below. And so my prayer for us this morning as we consider these things, as we consider the fact that the saints' primary responsibility is to preach the simple gospel. I'm not offering you something complex. I'm not trying to train you in something that's incredibly difficult. The gospel message is simple. The Son of God descended. He came to dwell with man. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and, on, and at the age of 33, he was crucified. He died in your stead. He himself became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He actually died that day. He actually died. He was placed in the grave, and he died not for his own sin because he had none. He was perfectly righteous, de- deserving of nothing more than praise and glory all his days, but instead he took on our wrath that when he died, Jesus, because of the beauty of the gospel, God set aside the record of debt, nailing it to the cross 
so that no longer does the saint have the opportunity to actually feel guilt. Yes, there may be worldly guilt for a brief period of time, and there may be a bit of spiritual guilt for the purpose of bringing you to repentance, but friends, in actuality, there is no guilt for you. Never will you stand before the judge and he declare you guilty in heaven's court. We see this even in Romans chapter 8 where it makes clear who can bring a charge against God's elect. Not a single soul can. It's been dealt with. But that's not all he rose on the third day. And today, by the beauty of the gospel, we are able to say that that resurrection life that Christ purchased is a resurrection life that we can walk in. It's a simple message. Proclaim it consistently. It's a simple message that you can proclaim consistently and it's a simple message that you can expect results from. You may knock on a thousand doors and see one come to faith. But that one coming to faith, their eternal fate has changed forever. What better motivation do we have? That we can look at men who in one moment were haters of God And all of a sudden, because of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, they are able to believe and now they are called friends and sons of God, justified, forgiven of their sin. So my encouragement to you this morning is that not only to you, but to me as well, that we would faithfully walk proclaiming the gospel message, that we might see many come to faith. The great joy and the great hope of this church is that we would, yes, grow. But my hope is that we would grow from baptisms, It would grow from seeing people come to faith. And as your pastor, I'm just going to say this. I have opportunities to share the gospel with people. The vast majority of my time, though, is spent with you. The vast majority of my time is spent with you. I believe in Ephesians chapter 4 that the call for the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I have said this, and I will say it many more times. Friends, I don't equip you for the work of the ministry for you not to do ministry. And I want you to, I say this from a place of love because there is nothing more tragic than watching a saint who was followed after Jesus all their days that, that they would go to their grave never seeing one place their faith in Christ because of their witness. And so we go proclaiming a simple message consistently with an expectation that God in the authority of his gospel is able to rescue and redeem that which is lost. And so as we leave this place, my prayer for you this morning is that you would grow in faithfulness that you would grow in faithfulness because God has given you everything you need to see lost sinners come to faith in Christ. And never forget the beauty of a lost sinner saved. The beauty of a lost sinner saved is they will gladly sing loudly the praises of Christ. If we long for the glory of God, it sparks and promotes our evangelism. It can do no other.